0: Welcome back. Seems like it's been a while. Uh, It's episode 91 of The Professor and the Hack. I do remain the hack. Hugh Remington and the professor, PVO, Peter Van Onselen, uh, joins us as always. Peter, how are you?
1: Good, Hugh. Yeah, it's great to be back. It does feel like it's been a while, but I guess we've had a mixture of busyness at work, and I know we've had some time off, each of us, and school holidays in the mix. These things happen, but it's great to be back, and, and just in time for budget, as well as everything that's going on internationally at the moment as well.
0: Absolutely want to talk about the budget seem to be some interesting uh, shifts in uh, perspective coming from the treasurer at the moment. But first of all, uh, you know, time is a malleable thing. We all know that sometimes uh, time seems to stand still and other times it seems to go very fast. But I imagine that if you're an Australian citizen in India at the moment, uh, Mm. time seems to be a mixture of of kind of daily horror and, and this kind of frozen sense that you can't get home. And it does raise a question. We've been really effective in Australia in putting up the barriers to protect the Australian citizenry, unless you happen to be overseas. And we seem to have failed in uh, one of the duties that a nation has to its own citizens, and that is to allow them to come home. And never has that been more stark than in India at the moment. Uh, How do you think this is going to play?
1: I'm really disappointed in both sides of politics with the attitude towards Australians in India. Uh, For many, many months, Christina Keneally, for the Labor part, has been making a lot of the fact that there are tens of thousands of Australians overseas who can't get home, using her power as shadow home affairs in the opposition to demand and push for repatriation, flights and more effort. Now, that all of a sudden, and, and good on her for that, uh, because you don't cease to be an Australian citizen just because you're overseas. One of the things that you hope as a citizen is that your nation continues to look after you even when you are abroad. Uh, and we've got a rich history in this country of repatriation flights from different parts of the world in different trouble spots when needed to get Australians home. So that was the Labor raison d'etre on this issue for a long time. However, when it comes to India, Labor very quickly jumped in and said, we agree with the government, with suspending flights between these two nations and it meant that it took the political pressure off the Morrison government when it came to actually having to do its duty to Australian citizens in India and I'm really disappointed by that because you can do it as safely as possible and even when there are risks there are good people willing to do it and there needs to be government capacity and preparedness to do it and I mean this is just one example but Christmas Island as a facility. You know, it's not one that I've particularly liked. It's not one that I thought was necessary early on when we saw people go there from China right at the beginning of the pandemic around Wuhan. But now with what's happening in India, the strain that's there, the real concerns that are developing around hotel quarantine, even though it is world leading, we should acknowledge that. Christmas Island, it's sitting there. It could be used as a purpose-built facility to get thousands of Australians stuck in India home instead of leaving them there to rot because the problem with India, it's so awful. This isn't a case of people being stuck in developed countries elsewhere, being stuck in India where they're running out of oxygen, where there aren't beds available, there aren't doctors available, people are dying in the streets. It is such a different proposition to being stuck, for example, in the United States, even at the height of the pandemic there.
0: It's interesting isn't it because it reminds us that this is a global pandemic and and some people uh more academic in their viewpoint say that essentially no one's safe unless everyone's safe. It, it, it's obviously mm. almost impossible to vaccinate straight away everyone in, 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 on the globe. But, but that when you have large populations where you have uh, the disease running rampant, then that creates not just the likelihood, but the inevitability of mutant strains emerging. And those mutant strains can leap over the firewalls that we've so carefully uh, produced, uh, particularly, uh, say, with vaccines as evidence that, for example, that the uh, South African Variant um, is, uh, you know, you can get more easily infected with the South African variant than you were with the original ones. It can go more quickly. And then we go from the original virus that was there identified out of China into something that becomes nastier. So the case goes: Should we be rushing to vaccinate all of Australians, or should we be using such vaccines as we have got, as we've done with PNG to a certain degree? Should it be part of a more global push to get as many people on population bases uh, around the world vaccinated?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm um, relatively relaxed about getting the vaccine rollout right, even if it takes time and keeping those borders up. Other than the caveat, obviously, of getting Australian citizens home, but I, I think if you want to give the government, like I do leeway on the vaccine and the speed of the rollout and the the ability and the willingness to keep those borders firm for longer so that more people around the world can get the vaccine and so that we don't uh, need to, if you like, rush the rollout of the vaccine for the same, not, not just for the fact that we've got a level of relative safety uh, and, and civility here in Australia, but also because of it allows us to let the rest of the world be the petri dish when it comes to the vaccine and then we follow on you know, rather than simply um, finding out about problems as we've had millions of citizens already vaccinated. But if you're going to be, if you're like forgiving of the government on that, like I am and not everyone is, you then have to be hard on the government about repatriation flights, as we've already discussed, but you also have to be hard on them about the quality of quarantine. And that means stepping up and fixing the problems in hotel quarantine, possibly going down the path of having these designated quarantine centres. You need to do that If you're going to go slow on the rollout in in order to both have safety medically and also to help let more millions of doses get out worldwide for all the reasons, Hugh, that you mentioned.
0: All right. Lots to talk about. Let's go to the budgets coming up on us. And we're hearing quite remarkable new sort of positioning, pre-positioning coming from uh, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Uh, the suggestion being that what matters now is getting unemployment down till it's got a four in front of it, which suggests that there will be uh, more spending than you would think would traditionally come from a coalition treasurer and a coalition government. Uh, almost the kind of language you might have expected from a kind of a Labour traditionalist in some ways.
1: What are you reading there? Yeah, I've written about this for The Weekend Australian as well. It, it, it is extraordinary how these things change. And, and you have to draw a distinction between calling out what I regard as a version of hypocrisy or a backflip with also acknowledging that it might be the right economic course to go down, but that doesn't make it any less of a backflip from past rhetoric with a lack of understanding from the government at past moments in time where it was also the right way to go. Like for example, the global financial crisis with the relatively limited spending that was rolled out then versus around the pandemic where admittedly it has required more spending as well. But this is a government that made its whole raison d'etre debt and deficit and getting the budget back in the black and talking about the need for austerity measures and and that ballooning debt was this national crisis when that ballooning debt was infinitely less than half of what it already is now and continuing to grow. Yet here they are suddenly telling us they're not even going to start budget repair until unemployment has a four in front of it. Now, just to be clear, an unemployment rate with a four in front of it all through the Howard years They only got to that rate in the dying months of the Howard government after 11 and a half years in power. It's basically the equivalent of close to full employment to get an unemployment rate with a four in front of it. It ain't easy. And it is surprising that we're at 5.6 now. That's likely to go up a little bit with JobKeeper coming to an end. But boy, Hugh, I tell you what, if that's the goal, it could be years before they're even going to begin the task of budget repair. Now economists will say, most economists, not all, that that's not a bad thing because you need money in the economy as long as the spending is being is doing one of two things, either generating growth in the economy because it's putting money in people's pockets that so they can spend or it's going into productivity enhancing initiatives. As long as it's just not deadweight recurrent expenditure where it's getting outlaid on which doesn't go straight to the to the bottom line of of people's spending habits, uh, then it's a good thing because we need it at the moment. Interest rates are at record low. There's little room for the Reserve Bank to move on monetary policy. So fiscal policy has to, to some extent, do the heavy lifting to generate economic growth. But I tell you what, uh, there is a a can being kicked down the road when it comes to debt accumulation. And again, just like we criticise hotel quarantine, just like we criticise other things that have happened, Australia comparatively on the world stage is in a good position, but we're not in near, you know, we've got a lot less debt than a lot of other countries. But we have accumulated debt relative to our population size more quickly over the pandemic than most countries. And it is still a problem, even if it's a lesser problem for us than it is in places like the United States, for example.
0: It's interesting, though, because if you look at uh, Freidenberg's comments, he has uh, spoken about how uh, in generating jobs, you save money in the budget, obviously, because you're not spending it on welfare. And you pick hmm. up at the other side because you get increased tax uh, from the income tax, the personal income tax. that's now being paid by those in jobs. It's pretty much a no brainer. Anyone uh, who's done high school economics can follow that. But it's interesting that he's he's now arguing that point. Um, whereas, uh, you know, it is the, as you say, the opposite of what has previously been argued. And I wonder if we're not watching something happening in real time. I've heard, you know, some sort of more philosophically, uh, leaning, um, political analysts saying that the neoliberalism that was essentially sparked off by Thatcher, uh, by Reagan in Australia, by the Hawke Keating years has run its course. And that the, destruction to the fabric of society uh, from that shift between the rich getting so much richer, the poor getting uh, you know, relatively poorer, although still overall slightly better off. But that has torn up the fabric. And that's been seen most evidently in, in recent years in the United States. And and I wonder whether we're not seeing some sort of fundamental shift in liberalism in Australia that these arguments are now being made. Will it be a lasting shift towards a bigger government Liberal Party?
1: Well, I think this is the debate that we need to have, actually, as a country. I mean, the Liberal Party need to have it for what they stand for philosophically. But as a nation, we need to decide what we want from government. You know, and, and all the indications are to me that we want and expect more from government as the years roll by, you know, the rollout of the NDIS, just as one example, the expectation that government is bigger with its hand able to creep into private practice more than it perhaps once was around that neoliberal philosophy and that construct. But we need to have a serious discussion about what we expect of our government. Now, from what I can gather, culturally, the expectations and the increasing expectations of government are such that we, then, we need to then, assuming that is where it lands and seems to be, we then need to talk about how government taxes and how much tax government needs to raise as a percentage of GDP. Now, I, I note that we're in the top five, I think third in the OECD when it comes to tax to GDP as a percentage. So we're already on the big government side in, in a way that might surprise some people. But this is a debate that needs to be had, because if you want a lot from government, you need to accept that they need to tax more. You can't have it both ways or else you are just covering or papering over the problems with debt accumulation, which always has to have a day of reckoning. And if that day of reckoning comes when interest rates and inflation is higher, it becomes even more of a problem because then servicing the debt becomes a bigger problem for all those generations further down the road. And then throw in things like the aging of the population and that creates its own issues. And again, the aging of the population creates an issue when it comes to expectations around government. I think most people want more from government when populations get older even if we try to plan for the opposite through things like superannuation. So that's the big debate, I think, that people need to have. But here's the other thing super quickly. You can't just say no austerity until, uh, until unemployment has a four in front of it and ipso facto no major reform. They're different things. Major tax reform and restructuring to have better tax structures can go on. Without austerity measures. And I think this is where I'm concerned that the government is letting us down. I don't mind if they want to reject austerity measures, either for a while or for a long while. But can you please fix the inefficient tax system? Because even just getting the tax system right of itself will go a long way towards fixing the budget over time even if not in the short term. And that's the thing that really matters. In the short term, we can pound away at debt because people are accepting of that in the wake of the pandemic. But in the medium to long term, you need to rein that in. And tax reform helps with that.
0: Let's take a quick break, PVO. Back in just a second.
2: 10 Speaks has released two compelling episodes of its 10 News First Person podcast in the last week. Forgiving the Unforgivable sees Kennedy award-winning journo Kimberly Pratt delving into the concept of Forgiveness. She speaks to two families who explain how and why they have forgiven the people that brought heart-wrenching tragedy into their lives.
0: I know the guy, he was drunk, driving on the streets. Right now, I can't hate him. And I don't want to see him. I don't hate him. I think in my heart, I forgive him.
2: And in our episode titled Walter Williams, released on Anzac Day, Hugh Rimmington talks to World War II vet Walter about his amazing story of survival. From being a prisoner of war working on the Burma Railway, to having the ship he was on torpedoed, to escaping firebombing, it's an incredible first-person account of this critical turning point for the world.
0: How many times, Walter, do you reckon you've cheated death? Oh god, I don't of count that, but I was very lucky. I did mean, I was lucky, you know. I was in the thick of it. I'm, I'm not trying to blow me trumpet.
2: You can catch these and all our episodes of 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you get your podcasts. You're
0: listening to The Professor and the Hack. Uh, and let's continue. Let's let's just stay on the budget just for one second. We've got this expectation it's going to be a budget for women, whatever that actually
1: means. Um you know, you'd like to think that every budget is at least half a budget for women, wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> well, you'd think so. What have what all the budgets been? Budgets just for men. But, you know, but plainly the government sees a problem and they're trying to solve a problem. What are they going to put in this budget that's going to, um,
1: you know, attract women? Yeah, look, that's a good question. I don't know what the new initiatives will be, whether we're talking about programs to assist women in need, whether it's through domestic violence or, or broader um, issues around sexual assault and discrimination in the workplace? Uh, I suspect I'll do some of that. But also, are we going to see more in the, in the social policy sphere around actual economic policy changes that support women uh, in their endeavour, either in the workplace or not to miss out when it comes to superannuation because of childbearing years uh, or whatever it might be? These are all unanswered questions. We haven't got a huge amount of detail other than knowing that the government has a woman problem and wants to solve the woman problem because it wants to win the next election as well. And, and, and it will be a fascinating space to watch. At one level, the issue that they've had around this has dropped a little bit off the radar. Now, it's not to suggest it's not still there, particularly, by the way, for a lot of women. But it has, if you like, dropped down the order to some extent just because of other issues, you know, the budget, for example, you know, the problems with India that we've just talked about, you name it. Now the government brings it back in neon lights uh, when it makes this a budget for women, but it hopes to do that in a good way, rather than if you like in the months to come, people put their hand back up and say, hang on a second, what? Ha- this issue has gone away and it shouldn't have. Let's get it back on the agenda and let's complain that the government hasn't done enough and rightly so complain that they haven't done enough. So it's the government trying to be proactive, bringing back an issue, onto the agenda if it does indeed put forward a budget that does a lot for women, but trying to do it in a way that it can at least give itself a pat on the back and more importantly, hope that enough women and men will look at it and give them a pat on the back for what they've done.
0: Well, childcare and uh, early early childhood development. I think there's going to be uh, there has to be at some stage a shift because we have uh, some of the best educated women. I think in the OECD, highest levels of education, we have uh, a low level of workforce uh, uh, participation um, comparatively, and that's a huge loss of uh, of talent. Uh, and and much of that is uh, the ship that runs aground on on the question of child childcare. Let's leave that for a moment. We'll see enough of that as the budget comes out. Other things coming up. Uh, We heard from Mike Pizzullo the drums of war um, statement. It's interesting in the backdrop of this, of course, Peter Dutton's moved from home affairs to defence. Mike Pizzullo, who worked so closely with him in home affairs and remains the secretary there, suddenly... He'll move across. He'll move across. move across soon enough. And (laughs) interesting enough, you know, know, it is is accurate to say that Peter Dutton may be looking to do what he's done in all of his portfolios, and that is move it to the absolute centre of the conversation. And so defence, we're going to be talking about uh, because powerful figures want us to talk about it, which is not to say that it's not there to be talked about. Um, wh- you know what the is parallel, it?
1: Hugh? You, you, I mean, you, you would have remembered this. Peter Reith always did the same sort of thing, and he did it again post-Telecart affair where he was damaged as a, as a genuine leadership option. And I would argue Peter Dutton's damaged as a genuine leadership option too. But when Howard moved him into defence, he then put that front and centre, and it was right in time for the Tampa election, children overboard, you remember all the controversies about that. Peter Dutton's a similar figure for Scott Morrison. You know, he's that sort of crash or crash through type figure. He's his bully man, and I don't mean that in the traditional sense in the parliament. You know, it's, it's a role he relishes. He's now got the leader of the House role, which, of course, Peter Reith had as well. Um, so it's, it's interesting as a, as a parallel, and, and, and Reith managed to do the same thing, make defence front and centre to Howard's benefit the issue here, I guess, is, is, is that the same motivation for Dutton vis-a-vis uh, Scott Morris? So there's
0: talk coming from Dutton about, you know, the possibility that at some stage we may go to war with China. Um, Taiwan looms. So uh, for all his skills at running domestic politics, Peter Dutton, and certainly running it from a conservative perspective, uh, is he too blunt an instrument to be essentially uh, talking about the most delicate issue that Australia has faced in a long time, and that is how we manage our relationship with China.
1: Well, I just don't think that um, Scott Morrison needs Peter Dutton in that role, uh, whether we're talking about what you've just mentioned, the need for some delicate diplomacy on that front, or even, frankly, when, if, whether we're talking at a more domestic level where there is a value in stoking it a little bit because of the fear of China and, and the understandable fear of the non-democracy of China. Uh, I, I think on either front, Dutton's not necessarily the right man for the job for Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison can do enough of that domestically himself and then he's doing it as Prime Minister and looks strong. Internationally, he's better off to have a more diplomatic face uh, facing up to China, I would argue. Where Dutton, I think, adds value for Scott Morrison is is away from his portfolio duties and it's back to his now newly found Leader of the House duties. You know, I mean, put aside the Christian Porter saga, I think the Christian Porter as a leader of the house, wasn't a particularly good one. Whereas I think Peter Dutton is, you know, he wasn't sort of combative enough in the role dominating the stage so that his prime minister can dominate the stage in the right way. Uh, I think Dutton does do that, but that's not what we're talking about here. Is it? We're talking about his portfolio and in his portfolio. I think, uh, you know, I think he's a a dead weight for the government.
0: Interesting. So China, are we, into what is an inevitable conflict in the in the years ahead. I noticed even Kevin Rudd, who was basically saying that nothing's changed with regard to Taiwan, you know, he was addressing the Pazulo uh, article, nevertheless said that his own Asia society has picked a conflict um, with China as a possibility in the back end of the 2020s. Well, that's not far away. So are we... You know, is, is this the thing that, that we have to face up to? Well, plainly, it's being faced up to at a military and at a political level, at a diplomatic level. But the Australian people need to start to face up to is if the uh, Chinese under Xi Jinping do as he has stated it is their intention to do, and that is to go after Taiwan, which is a democratic, uh, essentially independent nation of 23 million people. Where do we stand on that? Do we let it happen? Or are we somehow drawn into that fight?
1: Well, how and how? Well, oh, I think we inevitably are drawn into it because you would assume that America, as per their rhetoric, defends Taiwan, and in doing so, evokes the ANZAC Treaty, uh, and Australia therefore needs to disengage from China economically, like it or not, and engage militarily, at least rhetorically on the side of the US and by extension Taiwan but what happens then I mean you can see why Mark McGowan as the Labour Premier in WA says why are we raising tensions unnecessarily now they're so dependent on the iron ore exports so is the wider Australian economy I mean you you game play this out at one level you sort of think a Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, would be a lay down and then it's a matter of what happens next but that nation of, of over 20 million that you mentioned, and I mean, not technically a nation, I suppose, in, in, depending on your viewpoint, but Taiwan, you know, it doesn't have no military. And you've got the Seventh Fleet stationed there for the US. It's not an easy take, even if they have, you know, landing craft sent towards them. I, I've always assumed that the way that China gets Taiwan would actually be by the pro-Chinese um, opposition in, China, in, in Taiwan, rather, Winning an election and then starting the movement, rather than some sort of you know D-Day style invasion, I just don't know how it practically plays out.
0: It doesn't seem as if that uh, doesn't seem as if that uh, pro Taiwan um, faction is likely to win an election on. Well, they're on... dying,
1: aren't they? They got close a yeah. while back, but now they seem very very weak. So yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so look, a couple of other things. Um, a lot of chatter about the laying on of hands. The prime minister goes to the Gold mm. Coast to a to a gigantic Pentecostal gathering. Anyone doubts the uh, the fervor of the movement, need only have a look at that. Um, he makes references there to the evil one uh, with relation to uh, social media, and uh, you know, essentially the language that he that he uses and the style of it is classic standard Pentecostal preacher. Um, so within a church tradition, he's he's observing the traditions of the church of which he's a member, but uh, the laying on of hands, as he says, without people's consent, you know, when, when he's hugging people or consoling people and delivering a prayer has left a lot of people feeling uneasy. And and we, as Australians, we're not Americans. We are <laughs> often uneasy about, about this. What is, uh, let's leave the religious religion out of it. What is the net political consequences of stuff like that?
1: Well, I, I find this really interesting, um, and you, know, to shamelessly plug the book as part of it, we, we've got a whole section on Pentecostalism and, and his religion and how it has potentially shaped him uh, and might shape him into the future as, as Prime minister. I, I find it a really interesting, un, understudied. Part of Scott Morrison, and he's not particularly well studied broadly anyway because he hasn't been there for that long. But you know, Pentecostalism. We won't get into the faith as you say, but I think it's worth just noting that you know, it's it's around one percent of the population in this country that are evangelical Pentecostals of one form. It is a a quite radical Christian faith. It's 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 in that new modern era. But the laying of hands, some speaking in tongues. Uh, it's it, it's it's a it's a sect of Christianity which is quite. Insignificant in terms of its numbers, um, but it, it's one that is growing, and particularly growing in those outer metropolitan seats. And this comes back to what you're talking about. You know, it's it's there there is an interesting um, importance to it politically in some key marginal seats, despite being a one percent religion. But also, I think, and I've written about this, the mocking that Scott Morrison receives risks for Labor if they jump on board that too much. Uh, if you like getting the backs up of more mainstream religious Australians, of whom there are millions, uh, unlike Pentecostals, which is a slightly more limited sect. Now, I'm not talking about calling out the hypocrisy. I think that's reasonable, and there's a lot of that that goes on and understandably so, Uh, and that's the case across religions in my view. But I'm talking about just straight-out mocking. You know, I don't think a lot of mainstream Christians are particularly enamoured. pentecostalism but i don't think they like to see a pentecostal prime minister who is one of them when it comes to christianity being mocked for his religion
0: you get the impression that the people who are outraged by it were never going to vote for scott morrison anyway but um look we'll leave religion on there there's only so far you can go with that but it is interesting it's an interesting development because i don't think we've had uh, a pentecostal prime minister before if they have they've kept it pretty quiet in the past um on election timing we're coming into a budget. Is this an election budget or do you think he will squeeze
1: in another one? I think he's likely to squeeze another one in, but there's no guarantee. That would be the way I'd put it. So initially, if you rewound six months, I would have said this is not only an election budget, but an election year. Now, I, I think it looks more likely as he tries to repair what's happened in recent months, particularly on gender and other issues. I think it's more and, and with the vaccine rollout not being certain with where it'll be at by the end of the year. I think it's more likely he looks to go at a similar time, frankly, that he he went back in 2019. uh, And that would mean potentially bringing the budget forward uh, like he did in 2019 to April and then going to the election straight off the back of the budget. I think that looks like it's on the cards again, but it's not a certainty. So this budget has to be capable of being one away from an election, but it also has to be capable of being an election budget uh, just in case he decides to pivot Uh, and see political advantage in going a little earlier.
0: And does it, uh, you know, the polls tell us some things, but we all discuss polls with all the usual caveats. Does it remain the case that the strongest asset for the coalition government at the moment is Scott Morrison himself?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think a lot of people are surprised by that, who don't like Scott Morrison. But, you know, the latest news poll had him at 59% approval rating. Uh, He had a 26-point lead as preferred or better PM over Anthony Albanese. Uh, I I think that the coalition government is long in the tooth. It's going for a fourth term. He's their third prime minister. But Scott Morrison himself, like him or loathe him for a lot of Australians, particularly in key out-of-metro seats, he is the fellow that got us through the pandemic. Whether he got dragged there by the state premiers kicking and screaming is a a debating point. Uh, He is an asset to the government, not a liability, no doubt about that, Uh, even though a lot of people who aren't going to vote for him and probably never will uh, would bristle at the thought.
0: So you've studied him more closely than most. Your book, How Good Is Scott Morrison? There's the plug, is, um, is out <laughs> and about. What is it, given that he plainly has some limitations, uh, but he has strengths which are harder to measure in political terms, in the simplest terms, in the time remaining to us, what is it about Scott Morrison that makes him effective?
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy in, in a short time frame. Ultimately, it's his pragmatism. But what risks that effective pragmatism is his stubbornness. So he's not—I'm I, I, not comfortable calling him a pure pragmatist because he actually lets stubbornness get in the road of that to his own detriment. Um, but ultimately, the pragmatism coupled with his party apparatchik background make him better at finding ways to win than some politicians are. But whether, and this is what the book criticizes him on, whether in the long term that's a good thing is a whole other matter, because in the long term, political leaders get judged on a lot more than just winning elections that they were unexpected to do.
0: And Albanese, will he lead the the Labour Party into the election, particularly if it happens next year?
1: I'd be very surprised if he didn't get to the election. Uh, Whether he wins it or not, though, of course, is, is a much tougher question.
0: All right, we're into the business of predicting the future now. We never do that, Uh, Peter. We've never been held—I've
1: never been held to account for that before. You on this podcast? Good to chat. All
0: the best. Take care.
2: You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.